Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Religious Liberties Winning Streak. Do recent court opinions portend a sea change? Part of our Preserve the Constitution series. Please welcome our host, Tom Jipping, Senior Legal Fellow for the Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome everyone to the, to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, this is the final event in our Preserve the Constitution series for this year. We've uh, looked at topics like immigration federalism and equity versus equality. We've previewed, previewed the Supreme Court's term uh, and heard from uh, Judge William Pryor give our distinguished lecture. And today we're going to look at what appears to be a winning streak for religious liberty in the Supreme Court. Uh, when Congress unanimously passed the International Religious Freedom Act in 1998, the very first words of the bill are that religious the right to practice or the right to religious freedom undergirds the very origin and existence of the United States. Uh, and too few people today really know what that history is. When uh, New Amsterdam, which was the capital of the New Netherlands colony, was founded in 1625, the Articles of Transfer that's, that organized the, uh, the colony said that the citizens could keep and enjoy the liberty of their conscience in religion. Uh, Maryland's act concerning religion referred not only to religion, but to the free exercise thereof. Uh, even General George Washington told his troops uh, to protect and support the free exercise of the religion of the country. Uh, that arc, uh, which is over three centuries, includes presidential proclamations, declarations and treaties internationally, uh, and of course the First Amendment, which guarantees the right to the free exercise of religion. America's founders believed that the right to exercise religion was a natural, inalienable, and inviolable right. Unfortunately, however, it is taking far less time to dismantle what took three centuries to build. Uh, for the first time in 80 years of Gallup polling, less than a majority of Americans say they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. Uh, the percentage of people who believe that religion is important in their personal life is at a 30-year low, while the share who are dissatisfied with the influence of religion publicly is at a 30-year high. Uh, a growing share of our fellow citizens seem to believe that religious freedom is at best one of many competing interests and at worst uh, an actual negative influence in our society and culture that ought to be uh, squashed altogether. But there have been some glimpses of hope from, believe it or not, the Supreme Court. And in recent years, the court has ruled in favor of religious freedom in cases involving equal participation in government programs, the right of religious organizations to choose their leaders, uh, and in, in conflicts between the free exercise of religion and the civil right to be free from discrimination. We'll look at whether these are narrow victories just for the parties in those cases or broader victories for religious freedom itself. I'll introduce our panel. They'll each offer some remarks and then we will turn to questions uh, first from me and then from you. 
Robert George is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Uh, he chaired the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and served on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He holds nearly two dozen honorary doctorates, that's in addition to a bunch that he earned himself, and serves on the board of organizations including the Beckett Fund, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and of course, the Heritage Foundation. Kristen Wagner serves as general counsel of the Alliance Defending Freedom, where she supervises more than 100 attorneys and staff. Since she joined them in 2013, ADF has represented prevailing parties in a dozen Supreme Court victories, including Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which Kristen argued. She received her undergraduate degree from Northwest University and her law degree, cum laude, from Regent University. And Mark Rienzi is the president of the Beckett Fund, a professor at Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law, and a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. He has represented the winning parties in multiple Supreme Court First Amendment cases, he received his law degree with honors from Harvard and his undergraduate degree with honors from Princeton. Professor George. Thank you very much. Uh, Tom, thank you for inviting me uh, today, and thank you to the Heritage uh, Foundation, which does such wonderful work on religious freedom and a host of uh, other very important uh, issues. It's a special uh, privilege to be on with Kristen and Mark, whose work I enormously admire and whose organizations really are the leaders uh, in the fight in the courts uh, to uphold religious liberty. Probably the most important part of the Constitution that relates to religion and to religious liberty for our founders was the part before the part everyone knows. Uh, it was in the unamended Constitution before we added our Bill of Rights, including, of course, the first one, the First Amendment. Uh, and that's the No Religious Tests Clause. That was important and not uncontroversial, the idea that there would be no religious tests for offices of trust uh, under the United States. You could be Catholic, you could be Methodist, uh, you could be Jewish, uh, you could be Muslim, uh, you could have no particular religious faith, and you were still eligible to hold office. I suspect if you would ask the founding fathers <laughs> what was the most important uh, religion-related, religious freedom-related clause in your constitution, they would say the No Religious Test Clause. But that now seems ancient history to us. No one takes note of the No Religious uh, Test Clause. Occasionally, uh, the matter uh, comes up, uh, at least obliquely, uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was uh, under uh, consideration for the U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, the issue of her Catholic faith, of course, emerged. And so some of us uh, had occasion then to remind the public and to remind those who were bringing up the issue of her Catholic faith of the no religious test clause. But of course, most of our modern jurisprudence and most of our public discussion of religion-related issues and religious freedom uh, in the Constitution has been around the First Amendment and especially the so-called free exercise and establishment clauses. I say so-called because the strict grammarians, beginning with my beloved late friend Richard Newhouse, would remind us that there are not two separate clauses, but rather one uh, clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And of course, the great controversies, especially in our time, 
about religious freedom have been concerned with the interpretation of that clause, those provisions. Everyone's entitled to the free exercise of religion, and there shall be no laws respecting an establishment of religion. The Supreme Court uh, got off to a reasonably good start way back in the 19th century in interpreting the free exercise clause, especially in the Mormon polygamy cases uh, of, of the day. We would probably today frame things in a language somewhat different from the justices uh, in, in those days, uh, but they basically got it, got it right. Uh, in those cases, and in the Mormon polygamy cases, holding, for example, that the free exercise clause did not give people, even those who were practicing polygamy as a matter of their religious faith, a right to practice uh, polygamy. The court did not get round to interpreting the so-called establishment clause or the non-establishment provision uh, of the First Amendment until after the Second World War, 1947, in a case that uh, uh, happened just down the road from where my office is in Princeton, New Jersey, in the township of Ewing. Uh, the local school board was providing bus transportation, uh, not only for children to and from public school, but also to children to and from parochial school, religious school, so long as there was no uh, religious instruction, no catechism teaching, and so forth on the bus, and there, in fact, was none. Uh, there, uh, the court, very closely divided, upheld as constitutionally legitimate, as no violation of the so-called Establishment Clause, the provision of the bus transportation secular stuff to the parochial schools. What the court united on and got dead wrong was the basic interpretive approach to the establishment provision. They agreed, quite incorrectly, that what the establishment clause meant was that government could neither favor one religion over another or favor religion, say generally, over now what? Non-religion, irreligion, secularism, what have you. The basic idea, though, was that government must be neutral not only as between different denominations or traditions of faith, but it also must be neutral on the question of religion. And that misinterpretation of the establishment provision of the Constitution, or non-establishment prohibition on laws respecting an establishment of religion, has vexed uh, the Supreme Court and us uh, ever since. The court has never been able to live consistently with its own interpretative framework. But uh, I think it's true that to this day it's never formally abandoned the so-called strict separationism of Everson against Ewing uh, uh, Township. The concept of strict separationism being derived from a famous, well, what became a famous letter, what was helped by the case to become a famous letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist uh, community, uh, talking about the way the Constitution erected a wall of separation uh, between uh, church and uh, state. And so that metaphor attached to this doctrine of strict neutrality, not only among traditions, but with respect to religion uh, uh, generally. It just fails to capture 
the framers' understanding of the role of religion in public life. And it abetted a, uh, a misunderstanding, widely held, especially in elite circles, most especially in academic circles, a wide misunderstanding of the Constitution as privatizing religion, relegating religion to the private sphere, causing liberals to get all mixed up, fouled up, contorted in their own arguments because they couldn't save the religious advocacy, the religious-based advocacy, the religiously informed, biblically informed advocacy of Martin Luther King. Now there's a problem if you're a liberal. And you see the matter most starkly in uh, the writings of the most important liberal public and political philosopher of all of our time, and that is John Rawls. Uh, who in his 1993 book, Political Liberalism, labored long and hard to square that privatized idea of religion understanding with Martin Luther King's advocacy. And he had to draw innumerable epicycles uh, in order to square that, uh, square that circle. But the court has really gradually, I think it's fair to say, backed away. And, and undoubtedly, the day is uh, not too far into the future when the court will simply say, you know, the Everson, Everson's dead. <laughs> the, uh, that doctrine of strict separation is, is no more. The alternative, leading alternative doctrine, uh, the one embraced initially by uh, Justice, later Chief Justice Rehnquist, and then most famously by uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, basically endorses half of the uh, doctrine of Everson. It says, yeah, government must be neutral as between different traditions or denominations, different religious faiths. But it needn't be neutral with respect to religion. It can favor and foster religion generally. It can provide vouchers to attend Protestant schools as long as it also makes the same vouchers available on the same terms to Jewish schools and to Catholic schools and to Muslim schools and, and so on. And of course, the Rehnquist-Scalia non-preferentialist position also avoids the problem of the privatization of religion and enables us robustly and without apology to say, yes, what Martin Luther King did was absolutely square with the Constitution, as is what pro-life people do today. Now, back to the free exercise clause. Well, of course, issues in free exercise jurisprudence in my lifetime have, and I wasn't born in the Middle Ages, <laughs> old but not that old, have uh, in, in very significant measure focused on conduct exemption cases, cases where a litigant, a complainant, uh, was demanding on the basis of a constitutional judgment an exemption from a, an otherwise perfectly valid and constitutionally permissible law, a neutral law of general applicability. Uh, in the early 1960s, the court granted a conduct exemption on free exercise grounds in a case involving employment for uh, Seventh-day Adventists who could not, employment compensation, uh, who could not work on the, on the Saturday uh, Sabbath. And then spectacularly in 1972 in the Yoder against Wisconsin uh, case in which an Amish, old order Amish uh, family sought and won from the court uh, an exemption from the truancy laws requiring parents to send their children to school till at least age, uh, age 16. The Amish community uh, didn't want to do that. They wanted children to 
be exempt from school beyond what schooling was required to learn basic reading, writing, and arithmetic, and they were concerned that further schooling, even private schooling, uh, would tempt their children to worldliness and ultimately to apostasy and pride. And uh, so they uh, demanded an exemption. Uh, Chief Justice Berger, writing for the court, said there's no problem with these people. Uh, they raise their kids perfectly well. They raise their kids to lead the lives these kids will lead as Amish farmers and Amish farm wives and you know, leather workers and jam makers and, and so forth. Uh, they're not going to become wards of the state. They're not going to become criminals. The state interest in keeping them in school between, between ages 12 and 16 is just not strong enough to justify in the face of free exercise values of the First Amendment an imposition on them. Yes, it's perfectly legitimate to have a general law, a neutral law requiring kids to go to school to age 16 if you're Massachusetts or West Virginia or Montana or California or Arizona. But where this conflicts with the religious conscience of, let's say, the Amish, an exemption uh, must be granted. And then equally spectacularly, that regime of law was undone in the Smith case uh, in uh, the early 1990s, uh, which, according to critics, across the ideological spectrum at the time, from left to right, basically read the free exercise clause out of the Constitution. So this united the moral majority with people for the American way, uh, and uh, Christian coalition uh, with the ACLU. Uh, uh, Nadine Strassen and Richard John Newhouse were, um, it's like in that old uh, Lehrer song, uh, uh, National Brotherhood Week, uh, they were dancing cheek to cheek. <laughs> uh, but that coalition now has, of course, completely blasted apart. It was the coalition that produced what Tom mentioned, the, the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration uh, Act, which was then in part struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, as it applied to uh, uh, the, the, the states in the Bernie against uh, Texas case, where, where I'm confident the court did make a mistake and the conservatives were as guilty as the liberals in making that uh, mistake. But in any event, that's where uh, things uh, were left. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act still applies to federal uh, law. But states, if, uh, if religious freedom is to be protected by the kinds of principles that generate conduct exemptions, uh, have to do it with their own state RIFRAs, not with the uh, federal RIFRA. Now that leaves open very interesting and important questions that have been litigated by uh, both of the organizations represented here by their leaders, Kristen and Mark, uh, about what is in fact a neutral general law. Uh, just, just to say that, well, okay, Smith puts that regime of law out of business as long as you've got a neutral general law uh, at least for purposes of constitutional law, no conduct exemption need be granted. Well, it's not enough to say that because very often we find non-neutral or non-general laws masquerading as neutral laws of general uh, applicability. There's a famous case uh, in which the court united uh, to identify one, and that was the um, case involving uh, Santeria uh, religious practice, the sacrifice of animals. Uh, such as goats uh, in, uh, in, in one of the Florida uh, cities, the Hialeah uh, case. Um, where are we going? Uh, well, as Tom pointed out, uh, our friends here have won a string of victories uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, the, the Establishment Clause jurisprudence seems to be heading in uh, the right direction against the idea of the privatization of religion and the free exercise uh, uh, jurisprudence 
also seems to be heading in the right direction. And what I can now turn it over to the experts to explain to you is the question that Tom concluded with. Are these key victories, especially Masterpiece Theater out of Denver, Masterpiece Theater, Masterpiece Cake Shop, <laughs> there's a lot of theater. Masterpiece Cake Shop out of, uh, out of Denver, the famous Jack Phillips, who, who would not, because he's a Christian, uh, bake uh, Halloween cakes, divorce cakes, or same-sex wedding uh, cakes, and then the Fulton against Philadelphia case. So we have one, one by each of you, right? Yeah, uh, the Fulton versus Philadelphia case involving uh, the right of the Catholic diocese uh, there to have its adoption uh, agencies uh, decline to adopt children into same-sex uh, headed households. Uh, my own reading for what it's worth is that those are uh, narrow uh, decisions, uh, regrettably uh, narrow decisions. The court had good opportunities in both of those cases to give a lot of guidance to lower court judges uh, and to settle more fully our constitutional law. But I'm a hopeful uh, guy, and I think I'm reading the signals uh, there from the justices. And we've had, at least since Masterpiece, an important uh, personnel uh, uh, change. And there are other cases in the pipeline, including cases that Kristen and Mark's organizations uh, have. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm hopeful that the, uh, that the court will hand down the broader rulings that we're going to need to secure religious liberty. And with that, uh, Tom, I turn it over to my friends. Christy? Well, thank you, Tom, for inviting me. And it's a pleasure to serve on this panel with my friend Mark. And also, um, just an opportunity to tell you, Professor George, that your courage inspires us. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's neat to have a friend like you who speaks up on behalf of um, individuals. Well, we've been hearing a lot in our culture lately about how our founders were so imperfect and how they messed up. But I will say that when we look at the ideals and the guarantees in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, we can say that they put those ideals and guideposts there to ensure the government doesn't infringe on our right as individuals to be able to speak, to live, to work, and to raise our families consistent with our religious convictions and to be able to freely dialogue with others when maybe we disagree with others and to share those different views with each other. We're also living in a season right now where those who lead our institutions and those who are leading our federal government and many of our state governments have taken the position that we only need to look inside of ourselves to determine what is right from wrong that we only need to follow our desires, no matter how transient those desires are, whether they're good or bad for us, and whether they even align with objective truth. And we are living in an age where you would think that that kind of hyper-individualism might lead to a deeper commitment to pluralism. But instead, what we're seeing is that activists are weaponizing the law to essentially silence and to punish those who believe in objective truth and who might enter the public square to talk about whether that truth leads to human flourishing. So that's where we're at currently, right now. Um, but before I get into the doctrine, I want to just give one reminder. And that is that it's easy to talk about the doctrinal developments in the law and to approach it from a philosophical perspective. But we would be missing it if we forget that unjust laws hurt real people. And as Mark and I have the privilege of representing real people in these cases, we see the pain that's caused by these unjust laws. They're not only silenced or censored, they not only potentially lose everything they have, including their vocation, 
But think for a minute about the other victims of these laws. Not just those in the center of the cases, but think about the young woman who didn't hear the pro-life message or received post-abortive care because the pregnancy resource center was closed. Or think about the father who needed to get back on his feet and have hope and healing at a gospel homeless shelter, and he couldn't enter that shelter or receive any of the counseling that they would provide. Think about the young girl who, there are all too many of them right now, who's considering getting counseling with the help of her parents to help her live at peace with her body. And instead, the law precludes her from getting that counseling and she permanently takes measures that will alter her body. Those are real unjust laws hurting real people. And I think we need to remember them as we have this discussion. And it's true, um, I looked it up, 18 of the last 19 religious liberty decisions we have prevailed in. Um, and a recent study by the University of Chicago says over 80% of the cases in the last 16 years we've had wins. But I would probably align with Professor George and say that these have been incremental wins. Um, in some sense, they haven't been as big as we would like. And I think the real test continues to be what's to come. The threats are not decreasing, they're increasing, as are the significance of the issues. Um, we can see that through the COVID era, right, where no one would believe that the right to worship would essentially be taken away by a local mayor, and yet that's what we saw. No one would think, for example, that um, critical theory might come into our school system and then come into our legal system and silence objective truth that we're created male and female or essentially obliterate the idea that if the law refuses to recognize distinctions between men and women, women and girls are the ones that primarily get hurt. And lastly, what we're seeing at ADF is that there's even a deepening hostility when I didn't think that was possible. So we not only win these cases at the Supreme Court, but some of those litigants who won are back in court just three weeks later. Jack Phillips is one example, but he's not the only. We have a case called Downtown Hope Center involving a shelter and whether a biological man can sleep next to a woman. They won their case, so what did the city do? Amended its law to try to get around the win and apply it to the shelter again. We have other adoption agencies that are still out there trying to preserve their right to practice their faith and to place children in loving homes even after Fulton. So the threats are increasing, but with these threats, I think comes great opportunity. So I'm gonna go back to COVID because actually what in many ways was difficult for all of us and for our nation and our culture actually helped us advance the law in the area of religious freedom in ways I don't know that we would have anticipated, um, but we're very thankful for. So first of all, there were a number of decisions um, or, or emergency relief that was given to the court. I'm just gonna focus on Tandon, which I think is the kind of culmination of those different orders. And in the Tandon uh, emergency order, the court issued basically four principles. I thought it was a great decision because you could read it and go, first, second, third, fourth, done. We know what the court was saying, it was very clear. And Tandon essentially established that under the Smith test, the neutral and generally applicable test, that if the state was gonna create exemptions under the law for secular conduct that was comparable to religious conduct, then it had to give those exemptions to people of faith. 
who wanted to live out their convictions. Um, it also had some things to say about narrow tailoring and making sure that strict scrutiny was more a rigorous scrutiny than what the lower courts were applying in those instances. So Tandon did a little bit of cleanup on what Smith meant, and it was the first time in several decades that the court actually worked through what the Smith and the Lukumi cases actually meant. Then we get to Fulton, which providentially uh, was already pending in this course, and the court did some good things in Fulton as well. And that was the case involving religious adoption agencies and whether they had the right to be able to place children in homes with moms and dads and to prioritize that placement. Um, many times you'll hear it was about whether they would place children in homes with opposite or with same-sex couples. But actually, it was a broader position of faith that they held that many Christians hold, and that is that they would not place children in homes with, that were unmarried, that were cohabitating, opposite-sex couples as well. So it was a very um, broad and, I think, traditional belief that many Christian agencies have. In upholding that law, uh, first of all, those that have read it probably keyed in on uh, Justice Alito's decision and how it called for uh, full-throated calling for the reversal of Smith. And we hope for that. That's something our organization works toward, and I know Beckett's does as well. But it also had many other good points um, in helping us with the Smith case. First of all, you might notice that in uh, the concurrence by Justice Barrett, she explicitly said that the Free Exercise Clause is more than just an anti-discrimination statute. As Professor, uh, Professor George referred to earlier, it has a much broader meaning, and it's really about minimizing the interference of the government into religious practices. So those are not the majority decisions. I'm going to focus now on the majority decision in Fulton, um, which I think has more to it than what you might think in terms of good things for us. First of all, um, it reiterated the Thomas decision, which said it doesn't really matter how idiosyncratic or unusual or unpopular your religious beliefs are. That's not what determines whether your beliefs are going to be protected. We protect weird beliefs is essentially what the court said, and it reiterated that. And I think that's important because while we can skip over that, we know that it reiterated it in a moment that was a cultural flashpoint in applying some of the issues that we're facing today. A second thing that I think Fulton did was it, again, um, reminded those who, who are involved in this that masterpiece meant what it said, that religious hostility to people because they're motivated by religion is wrong. And then lastly, and very significantly, the court said, and when it comes to these exemptions, when the state is letting other people do the same thing that people of faith want to do, if they reserve that discretion to make exceptions, we don't care whether they exercise the discretion. What matters is that they have the opportunity to favor secular activity over religious activity. And those three principles are very clarifying and very helpful in a number of cases. And I did say lastly, but there's one more I have to add because it's my favorite. Uh, I emailed Mark about it too, is, is to see the Ocentra decision applied in Fulton and reference there, meaning that strict scrutiny means what it says. It is rigorous scrutiny. And so the state doesn't get to get away with these broadly formulated interests that are, you know, well, we don't like discrimination, but they have to apply it in that specific situation to that specific claimant. And that is a significant holding. We saw it in the Ocentra decision in a RIFRA analysis. Professor George referred to that statute. But now we've also seen it applied in traditional free exercise cases. And that's going to be important in the future. So I would say that um, 
In terms of the Fulton decision and where we're at on the current doctrinal developments, we know that Smith is still alive, but it's essentially, hopefully, going to be swallowed up with ex exceptions until it is reversed. And there are a number of exceptions that exist. And lastly, I don't want to take too much more time, but I think I'm supposed to just briefly touch on this term and, and what's going on this term. So there are three cases that uh, this term are pending. Um, we already know Carson versus Macon is one of those. That's involving educational reform, parental choice. Essentially, Maine has a statute that allows um, the government to be able to fund schooling by providing, paying for tuition. And what Maine has done is said, we'll pay for everybody's tuition in these areas, except those who want to go to religious schools that are actually teaching religion. Um, that actually mean what they say. And uh, Maine's response in the case has been uh, essentially that this is about use. It's not about whether you're religious, which is status, but it's about use, where that money's going to go and that it's going to fund religious education or religious purposes, um, which Justice Gorsuch has said in Trinity Lutheran is a distinction without a difference. And we would also argue might be actually that violation of the Establishment Clause. If, if you're principled about it, it's hard to believe that some religious schools that are actually practicing their religion can be discriminated against and not have that be a violation of the Constitution. A second case is the Ramirez case. Um, and I know um, that case involves a death penalty situation. And I think in that case as well, the court has opportunity to um, change and, and further develop the law in significant ways. Um, most significantly, I think there's also potentially an argument that one religious tradition has been favored over other religious traditions. It's about whether, um, I think it's a Baptist inmate can come in and have his pastor lay hands on him and audibly pray over him versus what other faith traditions might allow. So that case will be interesting to see what the court does with it, as well as if it expands the targeting argument and essentially says hostility towards religion is, a, is a, an important principle in the case. And then I think the last one, which was a little bit of a surprise to us, I don't know if it was a surprise to, to Mark's team, but um, the Shirtleft case, which uh, was a, kind of a sleeper case. And that case involves a city that basically said, we have this public forum and it's a flagpole and you can come and you can hang your flag. We'll, we'll let you hang your flag. For 12 years, they approved almost 250 different flags being hung in that public forum. But they did deny one. And you can probably guess what that was. It was the Christian flag with the Latin cross. So the issue in that case, I think we'll probably not just focus on whether that's government speech, although I don't think that's a close call. It's not. But maybe the establishment clause, um, jurisprudence will get expanded in that case because this, the city's trying to hide behind it um, in some ways. So that's a, a little bit about what's going on in terms of the pending petitions. There are too many to even discuss here. Um, and so I think that you will, there's a plethora of choices for the court to consider. Some involve um, public accommodation laws, others involve religious autonomy issues, um, but there are some great cases on their way, which I'm sure we'll get into. Well, thanks, Tom, and thanks to Robbie and Kristen. It's, uh, it's fun to be on a panel with such, uh, such bright lights and good friends and to talk about uh, on things like religious liberty here at Heritage. Um, Tom asked me to talk about the future of religious liberty, which is going to be you know, a little bit of present and then, and then some future. Um, if you think about our society right now, 
Um, as Tom said, in one hand, on one hand, we're getting less religious, right? Fewer people uh, saying they're members of a church and so forth. Fewer people identifying as religious. Um, we're also in a period that I think is undeniably a period of high conflict. Right? We have a lot of social conflict in our society. Um, the people who wrote the First Amendment, of course, were quite familiar with high conflict, with serious conflict, um, and it was serious conflict over religion, right? There were a lot of conflicts in Europe uh, from which the early colonists and early Americans had come, um, and one of their key ways of dealing with conflict was the First Amendment, was to say, as, as Robbie says, the test clause, was to say that this is going to be a society in which people are free to participate, um, even if they have deep disagreements about really important things. Um, and so as we are in this time of deep conflict, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of religious liberty conflicts. But I think the truth is our First Amendment is, is, is well set up and well prepared, and our court has been doing a very good job of enforcing it in a way that gives people protection, right? So I think as, we've, as you think about the last 10 years as a time of high conflict, I don't think it's a coincidence that the court has ruled in favor of the religious party or religious practice 18 out of 19 times. I actually think they're trying to do a little bit of guiding society, a little bit of telling people, look, this is how, this is how we get along, even when we disagree with one another. It's how we coexist peacefully in a society with people we have deep disagreements with, and not just about minor things, but about really important things. Um, and I think that's good. I think it's good that they've been doing that. Um, you know, my shorthand description for what's been wrong with religious liberty law um, since you know the 60s and 70s is that sometimes the court makes a mistake and tries to find the one test to rule them all. So that's, that's my shorthand criticism of both the Establishment Clause lemon, right? Like, like what's really bad about the lemon test, what's really bad about the lemon test, to my mind, is that it, it sucks people into thinking that all Establishment Clause questions can be funneled through this neat little you know, 70s-era three-part test, and they will then spit out an answer, and that's how we'll just resolve them all. Um, and I think in some ways, Employment Division versus Smith um, is, is a similar kind of mistake, right? It says, well, we see a lot of stuff out there, but we're going to basically just come up with this one rule, neutral and generally applicable against rational basis, and we're going to use that to cover all sorts of different conflicts. Um, part of what I think has happened in the last 10 years and what I predict will continue to happen is the court building out ways of thinking about things that kind of bust free of the one test to rule them all, even though they haven't gotten all the way to overrule Smith, and even though they haven't gotten all the way to overrule Lemon. Um, so let me focus mostly on free exercise, and let me start with Fulton. Um, I, I think Fulton was actually a big, strong, and important win. There's certainly more that could have been done, and I always am, am greedy, so I always want more. Um, that's my job to be greedy. Um, but, but let me tell you about the big, important nature of Fulton and then give you some objective ways to see how, how it's playing out. Um, I think it's actually really important that the court got to 9 nothing on a gay rights versus religious liberty case. Um, you know, that is, as, as Kristen said, a big culture war flashpoint. Um, it's one that divides a lot of people, divides the country in many ways. Um, I think it's really important that our Supreme Court said, we get that that's a conflict, but there is a firm principle here. And the firm principle is that the government is not allowed to discriminate against religious entities, right? That we're going to have real serious scrutiny when they do. Um, and that's important. If you pause, Kristen talked about thinking about the real human beings. For three years, for three years, Philadelphia, three, three and a half, for three and a half years, Philadelphia had a shortage of foster care parents. They had more kids coming into the system who needed homes than homes to put them in. 
During that same three and a half years, they stopped making referrals to Catholic charities, or Catholic social services, to Catholic social services, and to any parent who had been approved by them. So it wasn't just the agency. It was the guilt by association of any parent who had worked with them. So there's children who need homes. There's a city that's got an obligation to get them homes. And there are approved, good, loving homes for them to go to. And Philadelphia violated the Constitution by freezing them out because they disagree about a culture war sex issue. It's really important that the Supreme Court said that's wrong and corrected it. Um, the way in which the court corrected it was also very powerful and has had some important effects, right? So nine nothing is very powerful. It's also very powerful that the court did not give any credence to the left's, you know, like constant refrain over the last 10 years about dignitary harm and third party harm, right? Like their, their attack on religious liberty has been, well, you can't let someone, you know, stand aside and say, I don't want to bake the cake or I don't want to be part of that. Because even if you can go get another cake, there's a dignitary harm to finding out that your fellow citizen disagrees with you. Um, you know, the, I don't doubt that it's real and that it can hurt if somebody thinks your sexual practices or your religion or something else is evil, awful, and wrong, right? But in a free society, we all actually do have to deal with the fact that our fellow citizens may think we're really wrong about something really important to us, whether it's our faith or our sex life or anything else. Um, but the important thing in Fulton is there were zero votes. There were zero votes to say, well, the dignitary harm is important enough that you can shut down the agency. Right? And the entire court actually agreed to say that Catholic Social Services was not trying to impose its religious beliefs on anyone. They were just trying to step aside from certain situations. And again, I think that's really important. The refrain from the left against religious liberty over the past decade has been, oh, the little sisters of the poor, they're trying to impose their religious beliefs on people, or Hobby Lobby, or Masterpiece, or whoever. Nine justices said no. They couldn't get any of the justices. They didn't get Sonia Sotomayor, or Elena Kagan, or Stephen Breyer, or anybody else to agree that this is imposing religious beliefs. I think that's really important. Um, let me give you some evidence that it's not just me who thinks it's really important, but that I suspect the ACLU, and Lambda Legal, and Human Rights Campaign, and Philadelphia thought it was really important. If you remember, one of the early concerns about the case was maybe Philadelphia can just go change the contract provision. They'll just cross that one line out that gave the discretion, and then they can freeze Catholic social services out again, and it'll take them three more years to get back to the Supreme Court. Um, I'm delighted to report um, that they didn't even try. They did not even try. Instead, they entered into a consent decree in the trial court, which the ACLU, who was also a party, did not oppose. A consent decree in the trial court that said the government can't keep Catholic social services out, can't keep out the parents who work with them over a disagreement about the way Catholic social services deals with same-sex couples or unmarried heterosexual couples. So they maybe had a sliver of daylight from the opinion, but they knew if they continued the case, they were going to lose and lose big and make more good religious liberty law. And so they rolled over and died, seriously. And I think it's important to note that. Um, I don't think we're used to thinking that you can make the aggressive opponents of religious liberty actually realize, wait, I don't want to keep having this fight. I'd rather go yell about Trump. But the truth is, it's actually a really important thing to make them decide, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't pick on religion so much because maybe they're going to keep beating me. And so you know, the very optimistic side of me says, maybe that message will spread and maybe people will realize, you can keep bringing cases like this, but we're going to keep winning them. Um, let, me, let me talk about the future a little bit and what I think Fulton is part of, even if it didn't go all the way and get Smith. Um, 
I think there was an initial reaction to Smith that Smith covered the waterfront, that it was the one rule to rule, one rule to rule them all, that most laws would be neutral and generally applicable, most laws would be subject to Smith, and therefore most people would be able to be forced to violate their religion. I think one thing you can say about the past decade of religious liberty wins is that the court is repeatedly presented with opportunities where it could apply Smith, and it doesn't, right? So take the area of church autonomy or ministerial exception, right? When Hosanna Tabor was argued, um, the government tried to argue Smith to Justice Scalia, the guy who wrote it. And Scalia immediately said, this has nothing to do with Smith. Smith was about somebody's outward actions in a criminal law. This is about how a church hires its teachers. It's got nothing to do with it. And so in Hosanna Tabor and Our Lady of Guadalupe, when doing church autonomy, ministerial exception work, the court just doesn't apply Smith. It doesn't apply Smith. Um, Fulton, as Kristen pointed out, points to a few different ways to get around Smith, right? In Fulton itself, the court said, well, the government has left itself discretion, right? They've got discretion, and with that discretion, they might engage in favoritism. So when the government's left itself discretion, strict scrutiny applies there too. The government also, the court in Fulton also re repeated the point from Tandon, in which they said, if you've got secular exceptions, that you're also gonna face strict scrutiny. In Kristen's win in Masterpiece, the court talked about how if you've got government targeting, right, where the government, you know, goes out and says nasty things about somebody's religious beliefs and they are targeting the gentleman because of his religious beliefs, that that is going to get to strict scrutiny. So what you see is all these cases build out is it becomes harder and harder to think of laws that really are going to fit into what is becoming a smaller and smaller slice of the world that is Smith neutral and generally applicable laws. Most laws have some exceptions. Most laws, particularly agency laws and state and local laws, leave government actors a lot of discretion to decide, oh, I'd like to give somebody a waiver here, or, oh, this law shouldn't apply there. Um, so what I think we're going to see over the future, um, whether or not they reverse Smith, and I, I still hope they do, and we're still going to try to get them to do it, uh, but you never know what they're going to decide to do. Um, but even if they don't, um, I think what we're going to see is more and more the idea that Smith becomes very small and therefore doesn't limit religious liberty as much as we thought and uh, that the free exercise clause therefore ends up protecting a lot more people and getting to strict scrutiny a lot more often because more and more laws are discriminatory, um, at least discriminatory in a way that falls outside of Smith. In some ways, we used to think about Smith as like a default rule, like the basic rule is Smith unless you can get outside of it. And I'm wondering if we should start flipping that assumption and saying that Smith is not where you start. Smith might be where you end up if you don't end up in the church autonomy or discretion or secular exceptions or you know, Trinity Lutheran Espinoza or discrimination or any of these other lines of cases, maybe at the end you may end up in Smith. But the truth is with good lawyering, there shouldn't be that many cases that end up there. And I think that's a good thing. Um, so overall, I expect the court to continue doing good things on religious liberty um, and continue building out these doctrines. And uh, let me stop there. Microphone to come to you. Um, make it brief, and be sure there's a question mark at the end of your <laughs> sentence, uh, and then we can uh, we can maximize our time. Mark, the the comment that you made at the at the very end about you know, Smith kind of getting you know narrower and narrower. Um, has the court also done the same thing with Lemon? 
yes. there have yeah. been a couple of opinions, mm -hmm. one by, you know, the, the famous, you know, ghoul in the graveyard opinion by Scalia, where he, you know, pointed out situation after situation where lemon that everyone thought was supposed to control everything is either ignored or, you know, that kind of thing. It, do we see the same thing in, in establishment clause? Yeah, I, I think we do. And if I had 12 minutes, I'd have, I'd have tacked on an establishment clause piece. But yeah, but yeah the Supreme Court often just ignores Lemon and has built out, you know, one set of rules for monuments, right? The American Legion case from a couple terms ago, a different set of rules for prayer and government meetings and so forth. So I think they've been doing a similar thing. Um, I want to be clear, it's not cost free, right? The One of the big problems with that is the Supreme Court themselves can say, okay, when it comes to us, we'll find a way around Smith or we'll find a way around Lemon. But the reality on the ground is in the lower courts, the lower courts look at Lemon and Lemon reads like it's supposed to be the one rule to rule them all. And then they just go keep applying Lemon. So eventually I do think it's important for the court to actually kill the ghoul in the graveyard well, and it, actually get rid of it, the bad cases. It, it, and it is to all of our benefit to have our Supreme Court um, properly interpret and apply the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, as opposed to sort of you know, jerry-rigging things and, you know, all that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that is a great benefit to all of us and to our liberty and to the public respect for what the court does. At the Supreme Court uh, level, it seems to me that, that Lemon is just irrelevant. It, it dies with the resignations of Kennedy and O'Connor. Yeah. It's only relevant to them in the first place. But your points about the lower courts, yeah. of course, entirely valid, which is why the current court really needs to drive a stake through the heart of that we're using the goal metaphor, That's right. the vampire <laughs> uh, metaphor. Uh, just one uh, response to uh, really a question, actually, to, to Mark, that point at the end, which I thought was very good, and I hadn't actually thought of it before, the way Smith is being narrowed. Uh, you, you remove the, uh, the uh, uh, discretion cases. Uh, you remove the other cases that take you out of uh, Smith. It looks to me like you're left with straight-up criminal law cases. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's possible, and I think that's one place the court could go. Smith, by its own terms, talks about an across-the-board criminal prohibition. Other than yeah. across-the-board criminal prohibitions, there aren't that many things that look quite like that. And there's a lot of things that look like they've got discretion and exceptions and all the rest. One other quick question, just a, maybe a comment from any of you. Last year, there was a poll by the University of Chicago and the Associated Press, and they asked not just about religion, but about religious freedom. One finding which shocked me was that 44% of respondents said that they felt their rights were being threatened by other people's assertions of their right to free exercise of religion. That mm. seems to be at, you know, the, the cases that, Kristen, you talked about where, you know, Jack Phillips's exercise of his rights somehow threatens the civil right to be free from discrimination. That finding really kind of surprised me. Is that a signal of some of, of, of sort of cultural developments, which is going to be hard to, or which affect the way, uh, you know, these kinds of court cases can go. Well, I think at the same time when we were litigating Jack's case, for example, we got polling that would say the opposite, that um, polls supported the right of an individual to be able to step away, um, particularly when there's ample access to services and, and speech elsewhere. Um, and I think when I opened and talked about the hyper-individualism that, that we're experiencing right now, um, there are some, particularly those progressives that would say that's an attack on my personhood. But I think we can see the signal in Fulton that, that that's a dignity harm. Um, and hopefully that's also a dead end 
um, that that would be where I would expect the court to go with it. We cannot have pluralism and a free nation if we don't allow for views that we find offensive to be in the public square. The bigger problem, I think, right now, because we're going to win uh, going forward in the courts, you know, now who knows how long that will be. You know, we don't know who the future presidents will be, who will appoint the successors to Justices Thomas and so forth. But the problem right now is not in the, in the courts and going in the right direction. Uh, the problem is in politics and culture. And uh, you've got a lot, especially with young people, a lot of misunderstandings, a collapse of support for uh, pluralism. Uh, the idea that uh, you're uh, disagreeing with me uh, and expressing that disagreement is the equivalent of an assault on me. I mean, kids believe the darndest things. I mean, I have to begin my constitutional uh, interpretation uh, class now by uh, you know, asking the question, how many of you uh, believe that there is a hate crime or a hate speech, a hate speech exception to the First Amendment? And you know, 80% of the of the hands in the class go up, and the other 20% of the really smart ones who think there is a hate speech <laughs> exception. But no, I wouldn't be asking the question if the <laughs> right the 80% right. So that that shows you what we're working, and and we can't solve that in litigation. So the litigation has to work, work has to go forward. It's got to be completely supported by our movement. But the work in politics and the work in culture has to go forward simultaneously. We won't be able to sustain in the long run these legal victories without the cultural. So if I can, if I can borrow a Marxian uh, a metaphor here, there's a superstructure and a base, uh, right? And that base ultimately is culture. And by culture, I don't mean not politics, because politics is part of culture. The idea that politics is downstream again, uh, from culture is just a half-truth. And like all half-truths, according to my mother, that's a falsehood. Uh, so politics, you know, culture includes politics. But that work really has to be done for to sustain these victories. And it's got to be done anyway. Can I make one, one yeah. other point on that, Tom? You know, like that 44% number is interesting. And to me, it's a cultural point, as Robbie says, um, because I think it's, it's really not real. Um, and, and let me just give you like one big example about it, right? Um, when the concept of mandate cases are going on, Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor, and like, believe it or not, these cases are still alive. Um, but like, we litigated for years, and it was like this raging front page issue. Um, and the problem supposedly was, well, if Hobby Lobby doesn't cover this particular contraception, women will suffer. And if the Little Sisters and the Catholic organizations don't cover this, people will suffer. Those cases have been to the Supreme Court several times. You know what brief has never, ever, ever shown up? The yes. brief of the women, right? Like, you know what they actually can't find? Like, and, and it's not because they haven't looked. It's not because they didn't go scour Wheaton College's campus or somebody else. They've tried. They actually can't find anybody who's harmed by these religious exemptions because it wasn't really a problem. But they whipped up the world to think that the nuns were trying to come for your pills and it was going to be a big problem. And in reality, like they, like I've litigated this case for a long time. They can't find anybody because actually, I don't really think anybody was harmed. I really don't. Um, and and that, that goes to a lot of other fights too. Um, you know, the cake baker, the, guy got, the guys got their cake. They got their cake from somebody else. It was fine, right? So the claim that religious liberty is really, really, really harmful to people is a talking point. It's an enormously successful talking point in the culture, but I really don't think it's true on the ground. For the laity, uh, when, when uh, lawyers like Mark speak of harm, they're talking about harm in the technical legal sense, someone not having access to something that they're otherwise entitled to access to. Yeah. 
Can I just add one more thing on that? Yeah. And it's truth-telling. So one of my colleagues uh, has been really talking at, at ADF to us about walking through the door of telling the truth. So when we talk about the challenges, one of the opportunities is to explain the basis for our beliefs. And that's how I think you get at that political and cultural issue in, in terms of the educational system. So I agree with what you said, but we have an opportunity to tell the truth and to demonstrate why truth matters. And that's a good thing. Good. We, we are about out of time. Is there a quick question that if someone doesn't ask it, it's going to ruin their day? <laughs> Brother Severino. <clears throat> Roger, did you? Thanks. OK. Roger Severino, Ethics and Public Policy Center. What do you make of the argument that under the Smith regime, you could allow for a health exception for, say, the COVID vaccine mandates, et cetera, and no religious accommodation whatsoever? So you could say, if it hurts your health to take the vaccine, you're exempt, but not if you're a religious believer. That's not because it's, it's health and health versus religion. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that argument is right. Um, for the following reason. It's the reason the court laid out in Tandon, too. Um, when the government has exceptions to laws, they will make the law not generally applicable, so long as the exception threatens the government's interests in the same way. And the reality is, if you imagine, um, if you imagine a hospital right, that has a lot of people who have medical reasons not to take the vaccine, well, if those people are still allowed to walk around the hospital and breathe on people and be unmasked and not test, then the government does not have a neutral and generally applicable law, right? The government is saying, we're willing to take the risk of the spread of COVID for this group of people, but we're not willing to take it for somebody else. So I think if the government's, if the government or the agencies or whoever is going to have exceptions in their rules, they're going to say, sometimes we're okay with people walking around, then they've got to explain why it's not good enough. Now, maybe they've got explanations, but I think they've got to be put to their proof. So one of the things that I think needs to happen in all these cases is the government actually has to be able to make out its case and prove why it's doing what it's doing, prove why regular testing might not be good enough. They may have the proof, but I think the way the doctrine is supposed to go is they have to show up and prove it. One more question from anybody here if they just cannot take it otherwise. Um, mine was along, excuse me, mine was along that, that same line. Um, with regard to vaccinations, and the phrase that I always hear is firmly held religious belief. I don't know the whole phrase of it, but if someone makes that argument, does that mean, with regard to the vaccination situation, they can automatically win against whatever uh, organization is demanding that they become vaxxed, whether it's the federal government, a university, um, a community office of some kind? So short answer is no. Um, there are no automatic wins, right? What, what that might mean is under Title VII, your employer has a duty to see if they can accommodate you, and some may be able to, some may not, right? And it may mean that the government has to prove they've got an exceptionally good reason to make you do it. Sometimes they may and sometimes they may not. So I don't think anything is like an I automatic win card. Um, but what they can do is put the government or put an employer to its proofs and say, hey, is there a way around this? Maybe there is, maybe there's not. And that's, that's the genius of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which sets a high bar for government to interfere with the exercise of religion, a bar that reflects the importance of religious freedom. 
but it doesn't pick itself winners and losers. It, it applies that standard across the board, lets you go to court, make your arguments, and then they can sort it out that way. And the standard, of course, for people who aren't familiar with the actual legal technicalities, is that to pass muster, the law has to be supported by a compelling state interest, the highest standard known to our law, and represent the least restrictive or intrusive means of advancing that interest. Well, please join me in thanking Robbie George, Kristen Wagner, and Mark Renzi. Thank you all for, for being with us today. It's a beautiful day. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day.